0: Well, good morning. Anybody get stuck in the mud out there in the, the gravel lot on the way in? I was wondering if anybody here needed to be reminded of our theme verse for this construction season. Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 10, we talked about this earlier, the elders have adopted this verse, and it, it says, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. That's... That's our theme verse, so hey, just keep that in mind. Well, we're so glad you're here. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, and we are almost to a very major turning point in the story of the early church. Uh, Next week in Acts 13, the story is going to shift to the life of Paul and to Paul's missionary journeys that are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, but before that, Luke gives us one more story of how God is still moving in Jerusalem through his church there despite major opposition. And this really has been the theme of Acts in many ways, the gospel advancing despite opposition. And this remains the pattern today. As we follow Jesus today proclaiming the gospel, we can expect that opposition will come. And already in Acts, we have seen opposition from the religious elite. We've seen it from a threat of corruption within the church itself, sin. Uh, And now in Acts chapter 12, we are going to see opposition that comes from the government. But in all of this, over and over again, what we see is the prophecy of Jesus coming true, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God's church, God's gospel... God's purposes will always prevail. And we need to remember that as we consider what it means to be a sent people. See, it doesn't matter what anyone does, you can't stop this. You can't stop this. That is the message of Acts 12, as we're going to see today. The most powerful people, the most powerful forces in all the world, they may come against God's people, but in the end, they will lose. There is an evil king in Acts 12 named Herod, and he tries to oppose the king of kings. And Luke shows us what happens. He gives us this vivid example of the folly of ever opposing Jesus. And so he is reminding us of some important lessons. He wants us to never forget that the advance of the gospel doesn't come without conflict or cost, it never comes easily. There's always going to be opposition. And we should uh, be easily able to relate to this because to live faithfully today in the world always means opposition. But the good news is, though the opposition may be great, Jesus is always greater. You can write these words down. Because God is sovereign, no force can stop the spread of the gospel. You're going to see Acts 12 is a very honest text Acts 12 will tell us that sometimes our opponents chop off heads. But Acts 12 also gives us good news. Because Jesus can put heads back on. And this, his truth just keeps marching, marching, marching on. I'm going to show you today three realities of, spirit, of spiritual conflict. And you know reality can be hard. But when we put the whole story together, we see such a beautiful example of how no one can stop God and no one can stop God's kingdom. So write this down. Here's the first spiritual reality we need to remember. Satan is always attacking God's kingdom. We need to accept this reality because Satan has always attacked God's kingdom and people and he always will. Look at verses 1 through 5. We'll work our way through them. Verse 1 says, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. And again, this is just one more reminder. The Bible is a very realistic book. It is not a series of fairy tales, as some people like to say. There is violence. There is blood. Literally, it says here, Herod laid violent hands on some Christians. The the NIV kind of smooths this out. And we don't get all the details. We don't know exactly what this means. But I want you to try to imagine the terror that was there in that church because of what happened to some of their friends. Now, Herod's behind this persecution. And and if you've read the New Testament, you have seen this name Herod a number of times. And you have probably been confused at some times. It's easy to get the Herods confused, right? Now, there are actually four Herods Mentioned in the New Testament. There's actually more than that during this time, but four are mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, Historians refer to the Herodian dynasty, and this was a family that ruled and reigned during uh, this time, the time of the New Testament, in the area of Palestine. They ruled with the delegated power of Rome, and they were notorious for attacking God's people. Now, let me kind of clear some of this up for you. Maybe this will help you as you read. Uh, Herod the Great is the first Herod we meet, and we meet him in Matthew 2. He is the Herod who ordered the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem after the Magi visited looking to meet Jesus. He was afraid of a new king arising. Uh, We later meet Herod Antipas in Matthew 14. He's the one who beheads John the Baptist. He was the son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was also the uncle of Herod Agrippa I, and that's the Herod we are reading about here in Acts 12. And just to confuse you even more, okay, in Acts 25 and 26, we're going to read about his son, who not surprisingly is known as Herod Agrippa II. So there's a lot of Herods, but they all have this in common. They all hate Jesus. This is a very godless family. And this is also a family that's full of political genius. These men, these Herods, they they ruled Judea, Palestine with the delegated power of Rome. And they have learned over a period of time how to play both to the Romans and also to the Jewish leadership. And we see this here in this text. Verse 2 says, "Uh, Herod, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now this implies that James was beheaded. And I want you to notice, that's all James gets. James was one of Jesus' inner circle of three. He was the brother of John, a son of Zebedee, or son of thunder. Jesus had promised James in Mark 10, 39, that he would drink a cup of suffering and death. And he does, but he only gets one verse. Now, there's another James... That will be mentioned later in this chapter. And you need to know ahead of time, he is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He is Jesus' half brother. He's also going to be the author of the letter of James. Verse three When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the feast of unleavened bread. Now, there was no reason for Herod to kill James. James was not a revolutionary attacking, trying to overturn uh, the Roman government. But Herod does this. He executes James because he wants uh, to gain political favor. He, He wants to assure the Romans that this little sect called Christianity will not threaten Rome. And he's also telling the Jewish people, that he is going to stand up for their traditions because these Christians are saying there's no need for a temple. These Christians, they are friends with Gentiles. And so in killing James, Herod is ingratiating himself in, in both directions. And he's doing this because Herod loves power. Herod loves glory. And so he pleases people. We don't have to look very far today today to find modern examples of people who suffer like this, people who are beheaded because they claim the name of Christ. I wonder, uh, will the images of ISIS beheading believers on the beach in Libya ever leave some of our minds? But Christians, we are reminded in this text, can die with confidence because, as I said, our king knows how to put heads back on. Herod may have started with James sort of like, The number two guy in the church, just to put his toe in the waters, trying to gauge the reaction. And when he saw that this made the Jewish leadership happy, he decided to go to the top. And so he arrested Peter. You will notice that Herod is using a different approach than Saul. Saul went house to house. He was dragging Christians out one at a time. Herod's going after the church's leaders. He's hoping to destroy the church's morale. And there's only one thing that stops him from killing Peter. It's the Passover season. And during this time that the, the Jewish people celebrate God's uh, deliverance of his people from Egyptian tyranny in the Exodus, they didn't allow any trials to go on. They didn't allow any, any sentences to be, be carried out during Passover. Now Herod's probably thinking to himself, that's fine, this is even better. Now there will be a buildup and it will be a show trial. Everybody's gonna know this is going to happen and everybody will be watching. They will all see me kill Peter I'm going to score a lot of points. Verse 4 says, After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four soldiers, four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. And maybe you notice that's a lot of soldiers for one guy. I think Herod had heard maybe that Peter had kind of sort of developed the habit of walking out of prison. Remember that one back in Acts chapter 5? And so this is all going on, but here's the question. What is the church doing during this time of great threat? I mean, one of their key leaders has been beheaded. Another key leader is about to die. Verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. This is how the church responds And through human eyes, this might seem like a pretty weak response. I mean, is this sufficient? It seems pretty insufficient. Herod attacks with a sword, and the church counters with prayer. It is only insufficient if you think that God doesn't answer prayer. It is only insufficient if you think lightly of God himself. If you understand that there is, in the end, only one king, only one sovereign, only one Lord, then this is precisely the right response. Now, before we move to the next reality and spiritual conflict, I want to give you three applications that are very important. You can write these down. The first one is this, accept opposition as inevitable. See, the Bible, again, is very realistic. And the Bible shows us all kinds of assaults on God's people. You can just pick your tyrant, Pharaoh or Jezebel or Nebuchadnezzar or Herod or even Rome. And then you can look at the conflicts that we face even today around the world. God's people have always faced persecution. We will face persecution if we live as a sent people. And we should be surprised when we don't. I mean, it is often a sign when we don't face persecution that we're just not living very faithfully. We're just kind of blended into the culture around us. A Christian should never seek opposition and persecution, but we should never be surprised by it. And this is really a a storyline in Acts. We've already seen in the first 11 chapters, opposition that comes in the form of threats, in the form of intimidation, in physical beatings, even in stoning. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus was very honest with his followers. You remember in John 16, when Jesus said, you will face suffering in this world. But then he said, be courageous, take heart. I have conquered or overcome the world. And that remains our hope as his followers today, that Jesus has already crushed the head of the serpent at the cross Jesus has already defeated death by rising from the dead. He has now ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns over all. And one day, we don't know when, but one day Jesus Christ will return to this earth and he will judge the living and the dead. That's the big story. And friends, we are meant to live in light of this bigger story. And if we live in light of this bigger story, then we can live in our smaller little stories with faith because we know the king will always win. We know the king is in control. He is always in control. You see, you look at these verses, Jesus the king was in charge when James died, and he was in charge when Peter went free. God could have saved James, but he didn't for his own sovereign purposes. Sometimes God uses martyrdom to advance the gospel. Sometimes he uses miracles. And martyrdom martyrdom can't stop the gospel because martyrs are like seeds. You put them in the ground and they grow. Jesus just finds new missionaries to replace them. You can't stop this. You can't stop this. An uh, ancient church father by the name of Jerome once wrote these words. The church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others. By enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. So opposition is inevitable, but we do not engage in this spiritual war as victims, but as victors because our King rules and he reigns. Here's the second application rest in God's sovereignty even when you don't understand. We're reminded here in this text that God's ways are ultimately beyond our capacity to understand. There's a sentence that all of us have heard, but many of us don't know, was actually first written by a hymn writer. His name is William Cooper, and the sentence is this, God works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. I mean, just think about that in light of Acts 12 for a moment. Why does James die and Peter live? Why does James' brother, John, get to live to be an old man and James dies young? I mean, was the church not praying for James? That's pretty hard to imagine, but we just cannot know the mind of God. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher and greater than our thoughts. And we still see this today, don't we? Sometimes, sometimes people who would be amazing parents just cannot conceive. And sometimes people who are terrible parents just keep having babies. I mean, why does God sometimes answer prayers for healing and then sometimes he doesn't? Why do, as the psalmist asks in Psalm 73, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer at least for a season? See, the Bible is honest about these questions. And this is a story that helps us respond to questions like these. And it reminds us that we really shouldn't get angry at God. And on top of that, it reminds us that suffering is not necessarily a sign he is displeased with us. God just calls us to trust him. Even when we don't have answers and God just calls us to trust that his ways are wise, his ways are good, and his ways are just. And in all of this, we must remember that God has given us his son. Over everything else, we must remember God has given us his son. And God doesn't promise to explain everything to us, but he has given us the promise that changes everything. He will raise us from the dead. And we will one day dwell with him in the new heaven and the new earth where sin and suffering cannot touch us. And because this is true, friends, because this is true, we can live today in the middle of this old, sorry, dark, broken world with all our pain and disappointment. And we can live with hope and we can live with confidence because we know that our king will win and one day our suffering will end forever. God doesn't explain everything. But through Christ, he enters into our suffering with us. He takes the ultimate injustice for us at the cross. And he rises triumphantly over death so that all who call to him can know eternal life. We are to hold on to this reality even when we are suffering. Friends, i want to tell you today, glory is coming. It's not here yet. It is coming. And so we should keep looking to God in faith, knowing that He gave His Son for sinners like us, and that one day all suffering will come to an end. Here's the third application believe that prayer changes reality. Or, in other words, prayer works. The church is responding here in the very best way possible. And in our culture today, we don't get this. I mean, why not take up arms? Why not protest? Well, there are times to protest. There are times to take up arms. But we should be reminded for Christians, prayer is always the best and the very first response. And here's why. Please remember this, friends. Please keep this in mind. God is able to do more in five seconds than all of us put together can do in five years. See, prayer prayer is the church's weapon. And using prayer is not a passive thing. We, need, we are meant to understand that these believers in this passage are essentially, they're going to war through prayer. One commentator says prayer is an act of defiance to opposition. You know, it's kind of interesting. Our culture in, in the last couple of years especially has begun something that, that people call prayer shaming. Maybe you've noticed this. It usually takes place when a tragedy of some kind strikes and people express their grief, and their hurt by saying they're they're, they're giving thoughts and prayers. In other words, they're praying for people who are hurt by this tragedy. But it's interesting in our culture, more and more we have seen that prayer is scorned as useless. Prayer is like uh, this escape from reality. Now, we understand prayer doesn't mean that we don't also take action when appropriate. But I want to be sure that you, as believers, do not miss the derision and the insult. Our world thinks prayer is useless. And I've seen Christians sometimes get drawn into that mindset. We must not. There's a band called Rend Collective that has a song called More Than Conquerors. And in this song, they declare, we are more than conquerors through Christ. You have overcome this world, this life. We will not bow. To sin or shame. We are defiant in your name. You see, it is in that hope-filled spirit that the church prays. Prayer is not retreat. Prayer is an act of holy defiance. Prayer is an act of placing dependent confidence in the sovereign God who hears the prayers of his people and who rules over all things. John Piper a few years ago said that, that prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. He said, in prayer, the church is at war, and so we call up the commander. And the commander shuts lions' mouths and humiliates pharaohs. The commander breaks chains and opens prison doors, and we pray knowing that he will act in whatever way he knows as best. We defy the opposition through prayer. So how do you think of prayer? When opposition comes, is your initial instinctive response to plan or maybe to protest? Or is it to pray? See, we can learn from this church in Jerusalem. When the kingdom of darkness uses physical weapons, we counter with the weapon of prayer. And so we should wield our weapons. Are you wielding your weapon, friend? Are you praying? That's the first spiritual reality. Here's the second, and we find this in verses 6 through 19. God works to rescue his people as they trust in him. This is the longest part of the story. It involves a great escape. and, And we're meant to be reminded that just as the Lord delivered his people from Pharaoh during Passover, during this Passover, he delivers Peter from the hands of this political tyrant. And in these verses, we learn so much about God's presence with us when we face opposition. We learn about God's power. We learn about God's grace. This is a miraculous story, but I don't want you to miss. It's also a humorous story. Now, some Christians kind of struggle with laughing. And one of our goals at Southwinds is to change that. <laughs> and this is a story that encourages us to see God's power. It also encourages us to laugh. And, it, and it's pretty easy as we read the Bible, especially with serious stories, to miss the humor that's there. But virtually every scholar points out there's some humor in this, this, these verses. Uh, one scholar says that Luke includes a comic touch at various places in the narrative. Another guy says Luke was surely touched by the humor in this story. Another scholar says that Luke knows some Christians need to learn to laugh. (laughs) Look at verses 6 and 7. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. So it's the night before Peter's trial, and Peter is in prison, and Peter is worried sick, right? No. Luke says he is sleeping between two soldiers. So he's chained to two soldiers, and he's not biting his nails or wringing his hands. He's not pacing the floor. He is asleep. There is no hint of any anxiety in Peter. And this just points out an important truth. God's peace protects us. That God can give Peter enough peace to go to sleep on the night before he's going to stand before the king who just cut off one of his best friend's heads is amazing. I'm going to just ask you, do you have trouble sleeping? Many of us do. And And many times, we're overworked, we're very stressed. You might find it hard to sleep. Just be encouraged to rest in God. Now, I know there's a lot of various reasons that people don't sleep. But anxiety is often pretty near the top of the list, isn't it, in many cases? And yet here we see the peace of God which transcends all understanding, as Paul writes in Philippians 4. Peter was guarded by soldiers. But his heart is guarded by God, and so he is asleep. In fact, he's, pretty, he's asleep pretty hard, actually. He's asleep so hard. Did you notice an angel can't wake him up? It, it says in verse 7, this angel comes into the cell, stands next to Peter. A light shines in the cell. I don't think this was a little nightlight. This was a massive light. This is a majestic angel. But that doesn't wake Peter up. Uh, The angel, Luke says, has to strike Peter on the side. Now, the word strike, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean, hey, Peter. (laughs) Okay, strike means strike. He hits him hard. It's a strong word. And I wonder if Luke kind of smiled when he was collecting the accounts of this story, listening to Peter tell how it happened. And maybe Peter said to Luke, yeah, this angel was like kicking me in the ribs, telling me to get up. I mean, he hit him hard. And then the chains fall off the wrists. God's specialty is breaking chains, freeing prisoners. And he does it physically and he does it spiritually. Our God is a chain breaker. And Peter gets up. Look at verses 8 through 10. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Now, what we see here is that God rescues as we rely on him. Peter is following the angel But he doesn't understand what's going on. He's dazed and confused. He thinks he's dreaming. And what Luke is trying to get across to us is the utter passivity of Peter here. Peter doesn't know what's going on even. This this rescue is all on the Lord. God does it all. And it's really just the way our salvation works. Peter can't boast that he overpowered the guards. Peter can't boast that he had a great clever plan to escape. He's not even awake yet. God does it all. This is also emphasized when it says that the iron gate opened for them by itself. That last phrase, by itself, translates the Greek word automate. Does that sound like anything? Uh, Automatic, automatically. It just opens because God did it. It's the power of God. Peter enters the street, and the angel walks with him for a while, and then the angel leaves And Peter finally wakes up and becomes aware of what God has done. Verses 11 through 14. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. Again, this story is not about Peter's escape on his own, it is about Peter's deliverance by God. The Lord delivered Peter by sheer grace, just like we are saved by sheer grace through faith, not of our works, so that no one can boast. See, God takes great delight in setting prisoners free. As we continue in this story, we see even more of God's astonishing grace. And actually, this is where the story gets really funny. Look at verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Now, we don't know for sure who... This Mary was, which one she was. Some people think her house uh, may have been the house where Jesus had the last supper with his disciples. But whoever she is, she's definitely a woman of means. This is evidently a pretty good-sized home. But what is most striking, I think, here is that Peter knows exactly where he should go. Remember, there were no cell phones. There was no Facebook where you could post that we're having a prayer meeting, you know, do the humble brag thing. We're, We're praying, we're praying. Peter just knows there will be at Mary's house and the church is praying. Luke says they were praying earnestly. But I want you to know something ahead of time. Even the best of churches sometimes find it hard to believe that the Lord answers prayer. And God's grace is so astonishing here that even a church praying earnestly had a difficult time believing it. Look at verse 13. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, so it's like a gate that's outside a courtyard. And a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door when she recognized Peter's voice. So she's at the door, there's a courtyard, there's a gate. She hears his voice, she recognizes his voice. She's so overjoyed, she ran back without opening and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Anybody see a problem here? One commentator says, confusion and joyful humor abounding, what happens next? And first of all, there's Rhoda. Uh, She is the servant on guard duty. And Peter comes and he knocks and she recognizes his voice and she knows it's him, but she's so astonished, she goes running back to tell everybody that he's there, but she doesn't open the door to let him in. This is the last place Peter needs to be. He is a wanted man standing out in the street. And then the church, they're not any better. (laughs) They don't believe Rhoda. They tell her she's crazy. I know we're praying for it, and you're telling us that God answers the prayer. No, you're crazy. (laughs) Here's a picture of these people. They're praying and yet have a hard time believing God will actually do what they ask him to do. Has that ever happened to you? Verse 15. You're out of your mind, they told her. Have you ever told somebody that God answers prayer? You're crazy. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel, so they don't even go look to see if she's right. They start a theological discussion. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. So two responses. They think Rhoda is crazy. You know, like, Rhoda, the stress is really getting to you. Get a grip. Get back to praying, Rhoda. But she keeps insisting, and then they go theological. This must be Peter's guardian angel. So Peter's outside knocking, and they're standing around having a theology discussion while the answer to their prayer is already out there waiting for them. And Peter just keeps knocking, you know, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door or something like that. And and they finally open the door, and they see Peter, and Luke says they were astonished. Now, I don't think we should be too hard on these people. They were human just like us. And part of what may have been going on is they knew that God doesn't promise miracles every day. I don't care what you heard on TV. And so we should give them grace. But we should also find some encouragement here because this tells us the king is alive and he really does answer prayer. And he really does respond and get involved in our lives. And so they finally get it. They see what God has done, and they, they bring Peter in, and they erupt with such astonishment and joy. Peter has to tell them, be quiet. I mean, like, this is, he's a wanted man. It's the middle of the city. Somebody's going to hear. Verse 17, it says, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. And this tells us that God's power is always enough. You, know, you, you can't keep any prisoner in chains when God wants to free him. God loves, delights to answer prayer. This story, I think, reminds us of Ephesians 3.20, which all of us ought to write down on the sheet where we have our prayer requests, that God, our God, is able to do exceedingly above, more beyond all that we can ask or think or even imagine. This is a passage that elevates our, our thinking about what God can do. It should encourage us to bring great prayers to our great king. And I just wonder, maybe they were praying like smaller prayers. You know, we do that. Maybe they were saying, just give him strength to endure this trial, Lord. Or Lord, please let Herod offer a lighter sentence. But whatever they were praying, the Lord graciously decides to blow their minds and answer in the best way possible, set the prisoner free We should pray prayers that honor God for who he is. Everybody knows the song that John Newton wrote, Amazing Grace, but maybe you don't know some of his other songs. He wrote quite a few. One of my favorite songs and some of my favorite hymn lyrics anywhere are these. John Newton said, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. You pray like that? You pray like that? Before we move ahead, just notice two other pieces of information from the last part of verse 17. First, Peter gives God all the glory, and then he says, Tell James and the brothers about this. This is a small detail. But it, it tells us about the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, that James was considered to be the leader. We'll see this more in Acts 15. Peter then leaves for another place. And I want you to also notice that he is using practical wisdom here. God's done a great miracle. Peter's not going to start relying on God to give him a miracle for everything. He is a wanted man, and so he uses wisdom. He flees from the king. And here's the thing. It is possible to do both of those things. You can believe that God is God, and he can do whatever he pleases, and you can also believe that God gives us minds, and he wants us to use them, and he wants us to be wise. Peter does not run back to the guards and stand in front of the gate, you know, doing this, you know, singing, you can't touch this. (laughs) He uses wisdom even as he trusts in God's power. Verse 18, in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to... What had become of Peter? After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that they be executed. Herod's hot, and this seems brutally violent to us, but this was normal operating procedure in this time. If Roman law said if soldiers didn't secure their prisoners, they died. Now, such brutality aside, I am just struck by just the tenderness and the childlike Wonder that this story elicits. This story should fill all of us with an unshakable confidence in the King. It it should encourage us to be like a child, to have childlike faith in our Father who is in heaven. And some of you may have come here this morning and you need to hear precisely this. We need to believe like a child. We need to pray like a child. We need to sleep like a child. We need to laugh like a child. Why? Because our Abba is the sovereign father over all things. And he breaks chains. And he frees prisoners. And he humiliates bullies. And we can trust him. And we should pray to him. And we can rest in the peace that he gives freely to all his children. He is amazing. He is amazing. Here's the last reality, verses 19 through 24. And never forget this. God always has the last word. Amen? Well, What happened to Herod, this earthly king that opposed the kingdom of Christ? We know what happened to Peter. He's free. He's delivered. Look at the second half of verse 19. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured the support of Blastus, by the way, just to share this with you. Wonderful name for a child. If anybody's going to have a child, you know, Blastus. He'll never know if you're happy with him or mad at him, if you name him that. But this guy, Blastus, is a trusted personal servant of the king. And they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So Tyre and Sidon are coastal towns. They depend on Uh, The region's inland a little bit where Herod was ruler for their food supply. and, And they'd been in conflict and they want to end that conflict. And Herod loves to be depended on, loves to be seen as glorious. And so they come to Herod and they ask for peace. And verse 21 says, On the appointed day, Herod wearing his royal robe sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. Now, it's interesting, we actually have a separate uh, account of this in the, uh, the annals written by the, the Jewish historian Josephus. He tells this story, and he tells it very much like, like Luke does, but he also adds some more details. He says it was in the, the theater in Caesarea, so lots and lots of people were there. And, and Josephus says that Herod's, uh, Herod's royal robes were, were silver robes that, that glistened in the morning sun, and everybody saw it, and they were awestruck, and Herod loved it. And he sat down, which is what you did back then before you spoke, and he delivers this public oration. In verse 22 They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Now, of course, they were just using flattery. They didn't believe that. They just wanted food. But they knew what Herod wanted. Herod wanted glory. It kind of reminds me of the scene in the first Avengers movie where. Natasha the Black Widow makes a comment about this battle going on between Loki and Thor and Captain America's about to leap out of the Quinjet and she says to him, I'd sit this one out, Cap. They're basically gods. And he replies, there's only one god, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. (laughs) God doesn't dress like Herod did either. And Herod's problem... It's the problem that all of us have. It's the problem that's pervasive in our culture, the problem of self-idolatry. You see, for all of us, it's true for you and for me, the heart of sin is rebellion against the authority of God. We don't want to submit to God's word. We want to be God's. We want to do what we want to do. We want to think the way we want to think. And Herod is just putting on display the arrogance of mankind. But we're reminded here, Jesus will always have the last word because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled you may have boast for a season but God always has the last word what happens to herod verse 23 immediately because herod did not give praise to god an angel of the lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died so earlier in this chapter an angel strike peter struck peter to wake him, here an angel struck Herod to kill him, eaten by worms. And the point is so obvious. All those who oppose God will lose. When they oppose his kingdom, they lose. When they oppose his truth, they all eventually lose. You know, though the Lord doesn't always settle accounts immediately, he always does in the end. Now, Josephus, in his His history provides a natural human explanation of what happened. This is what he writes. He says, A severe pain arose in his belly, which became so violent that he was carried into his palace, where five days later he died. And it's interesting, the doctor, the physician Luke, doesn't tell us about that. He goes to the ultimate reason why it happened, and it's this God judged him. Why did he die? Because he did not give God the glory. Herod was a glory seeker. And friends, you are made for glory, but just not your own glory. You are made to behold the glory of another. The Bible is very clear. God will not share his glory. Herod wanted to be God, and yet he is weaker than a worm. How humiliating. What happened to the church? There's this striking contrast. We see it in our last verse, verse 24. Luke writes, But the word of God continued to increase and spread. The strongest man in the land tries to kill the leaders of the church. God judges him. And God's word just keeps marching on. You can't stop this. (laughs) Write this down. Jesus always continues to build his church. His word crosses continents. It crosses centuries. Here we are today. I mean, just think about this. Here we are today in Tracy, California, 2,000 years later, listening to the word of God because the word of God cannot be stopped. The world's opposition is great, yes, but the king is greater. And we are here. And part of what we need to learn from that, the fact that we are here is a living testimony that the word of God cannot be stopped. It cannot be chained. It reminds me of Luther's famous hymn, you know it, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Some of the words say the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And it's interesting, if you ever find yourself thinking that the word of God cannot penetrate to some of the very darkest places in our world today, And I'm going to give you a preview. Next week, we're going to see this in Acts 13. One of the leaders in the Antioch church was a guy named Menaean. And we are told that he was a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. That's the Herod Antipas that we we met from Matthew 14. That's the same family. In other words, the gospel has already penetrated into this godless, Christ-hating family. And this guy is not only a Christ follower, he is a pastor of a church. I don't know, maybe you've come here today as someone who feels some hostility toward Christianity. Maybe somebody dragged you here, you don't even want to be here. Or maybe, maybe you're just here and you feel kind of different, indifferent, and uninterested in religion just in general. You might be a pastor someday. God is full of surprises. So take heart, friends. The Word of God increase and spread that is our prayer here in Tracy and Mounthouse and Lathrop that God's word would take over hearts and take over our region that God's word would increase and spread this word leaves us with a with a, a warning and a hope and the warning is this don't be a self-exalter if you oppose Jesus You may seem like you're getting away with it for a while, but God always has the last word. God always has the last laugh. And you may not be eaten by worms like Herod, but here's the thing. Have you thought about this? Eventually, that's everyone's life, eaten by worms, unless you are in Christ, because we will rise from the dead. John Piper summarizes this chapter well. He says, if we stay with Jesus, we win, and if we oppose him, we lose. Though the wicked may seem to be prospering around us, we can know today it is only for a season. We can know today that judgment is certain, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We can know that everyone who opposes the king will one day face the king's wrath. And Herod's death really is meant to anticipate the great and final day of the Lord's judgment. Here's the word of hope. The king's mission is unstoppable. You can't stop this. We will inevitably, each of us, encounter opposition as we seek to advance the gospel. But we can fight and we can share and we can love and do that with bold assurance because if God is for us, then who can be against us? And do you know why we have this assurance and confidence? We have this assurance and confidence Because just like Herod laid violent hands on some of those early believers, we can have this confidence because Jesus had violent hands laid on him. Jesus, who had all the glory, traded his glory for humility. Jesus died for glory seekers like Herod. He died for glory seekers like you and like me. He died that we might be forgiven and freed from our chains and given purpose in this life. And our purpose is to make his word and his truth known. The king's mission is unstoppable, though opposition is inevitable. And today is Followers of the king, we know that nothing can overcome our king. We know that nothing can separate us from his love. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Nothing can separate us from his love. And it is on that love that we are going to meditate as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father God, what hope you have given us in your word. And Lord, we, we see that your word is both timeless and timely. Lord, I pray for every believer in this room that you would embolden us today, Lord. Just embolden the timid in, in our midst. Give them an unshakable sense of Assurance that you are with them and for them, that your word changes lives. And Father, give the anxious ones peace today because you are the King. And Lord, I, I pray for our friends in the room who may not know you through your Son. I pray that you would break chains, Father. You would set them free, Father, just as you have freed us. And we confess. Lord, that we did nothing to deserve your your love. We are all recipients of your grace. You broke our chains. We didn't break them ourselves. And we we just thank you for that, Father. Lord, as we meditate on your love for us in Jesus, as we receive this supper together, will you give us strength and courage to go out into this world, speak your word, that word that sets captive free, May we make your kingdom known. And we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. And all God's people say.